me invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 John, John's letter to the Ephesians, who he had come to know and love at one time. And uh, we, as we began last week, a, a new series in studying uh, this, this letter. Uh, last week we looked at the prologue, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1, where John helps articulate really what the purposes are of his writing this letter and, and what, really what uh, objectives are for our lives. And he said that he writes, everything that he's writing, he's writing that we might have joy complete. In other words, the whole point of his writing is that he might impart joy to you and to me, and at the same time experience joy as he sees that we are, are growing and gaining in that joy. And also in this letter, we see spiral throughout a number of themes that continually get brought up and we come back to them, but uh, we also are told that the goal of this letter, as we see at the end of this letter, is that we might know how to have eternal life, and that we have eternal life. And so the joy of having that fellowship with God for all of eternity that we taste and experience now, and the joy that comes with that, those are inseparable things. John is talking about that purpose, and as we move into, these, into the actual letter itself, uh, we see John addressing different issues to guide us through, uh, through, our, um, uh, through this life. As we come to this text this morning, we, verses 5 through 10 in chapter 1, uh, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord and ask Him to speak to us. Our Father, we, we come knowing that Your Word is what our souls feed upon. It has been revealed by You, inspired by Your Spirit through Your servants, and in this case, John that we may be strengthened and directed, in some cases corrected, but even as John says, that we might have joy. Father, I pray that as we consider your word this time, as we commit ourselves to it, that your spirit would be at work in our minds, in our hearts, preparing us to receive what you would have us to have. For we pour our intellect into it and we gain knowledge but truly only as your Spirit speaks to us can it be applied and can we gain wisdom in what you would have for us. And so we commit ourselves and yield to your Spirit and pray that you would be at work, that your Word would not only inform us, but it would form us, shape us, our lives, our thoughts, our relationships, that more and more we might become like Christ, more and more we might taste your grace. More and more our lives might honor you. We pray all of this in the name of Christ and through him. Amen. First John 1, verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If 
we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. May the Lord bless us and give us understanding from his holy word. During the days that our country was expanding to the West, back in the pioneer days of the late 18th century and the early 19th century, there was a breed of mostly men with a few women who were necessary for that expansion. They served as guides to all of the people who were moving from the civilized world here on the eastern coast, northeast, and even further south, going out into lands that people weren't sure what they were going to find. These were men who had traveled that land extensively in the past. Their profession usually were that of hunters more so than farmers. They were wanderers by nature. And on their hunts, in order to provide not only for their family, but in hopes of gaining great wealth and and riches, they would go hunting for a long period of time. Rather than being hunters who would hunt around their area and provide for what they need for a short period, they would go three months, six months, even up to a year, where they would be away from their families, trying to make the big score and bringing home lots of furs and meats and other things that they might be able to trade with. And during their time along that land, they had covered all of the territory and knew every creek, every mountain, every hill, every tree. And they became experts, and many of them became more comfortable in that terrain than they did even back living with people. And while that would make them kind of odd in a lot of ways, they became valuable as people wanted to move west. Because for ordinary people, people who had lived and grown up in civilized territories, to go into unknown territory, very rugged terrain, dangerous because of not only the the creation around them, but the, the peoples that they would encounter, to go do so without a guide would be perilous, to say the least. And yet, because these people knew the area, they were hired and they were, some of them gained great fame, Daniel Boone perhaps most notably of all, for their ability to take groups of people, guide them and lead them into areas, particularly what is now Kentucky or eastern Tennessee, and enable them to settle and expand where our territory is. Now I share that not only because I I enjoy recounting different parts of history, but because as I look at what John is writing in this particular text, and consider the context of what he is writing, It seems John is doing essentially the same thing as those leaders who would lead people out into what was then the wilderness. John is talking in this particular passage. He uses imageries that we see in in, in verses uh, 7 and and, and 8. There's the imagery of early this whole section. is talking about walking in the light. And the image that he uses talks about uh, our walk. uh, It really presents our life as if it's a journey. He's printed the reality as he opened this letter and talked about the objectives and the goals that we might have, but he also is reminding us that it's not immediate. They're not, all the things that we desire are not readily present with us. And even if we have certain things, there's still more to go. Our life is a journey, and he talks about the fact that we need to to walk in, in that journey. And he himself is serving as a guide through this letter and even as he begins in this particular passage. And he's a qualified guide, not not only like those who were uh, pioneers of our our day, but John also is one who is very well aware of, of the dangers at the end of this letter, as we talked about last week. John knows not only as he declared that we are from God, But this entire world is under the influence or under the power of the evil one. And so he's very well aware of the 
the difficulties and the trials of this world. He's not naive about anything. He's one who's familiar with the terrain because he walked with the one who was the creator of the world. And even as he writes this letter in the beginning of this passage, this is the message that we have heard. When he's talking about having heard, he's pointing back to what he wrote in the beginning. When he's talking about, look, we have heard, we have seen, and we have heard, and we have touched. He's saying now, here's what we have heard. He heard from the one who created all. He walked with Jesus, and so he knows the terrain of, uh, of this life. And he's one who has a clear destination in mind. People who are wanting and needing of eternal life and the joy that corresponds not only in the future, but the joy corresponds with the assurance that we have that eternal life now. And as John alludes to all of those things, he becomes a, a worthy guide for us in this journey that we are called to walk. John outlines that journey here, or at least initiates the journey with us in these few passages that we want to look at this morning. And the first thing that John reminds us is, as he be, begins the journey, is that our journey begins with God. Now, that might seem to be a very obvious thing to say, particularly in a, in a church, but I think it's important that we say and never overlook it and neglect it, because it's a reality that sometimes is neglected and rejected. A lot of people are interested in having their sense of immortality or their sense of joy, but not necessarily concerned with whether there's any relationship to God. John, in this letter, over and over again, reminds us what the theme of the whole Bible says, is that there is no real joy, there is no lasting joy, apart having, from having a fellowship with God, the one who created everything, the one who sustains everything, and the one who is aware of the reasons that we have the hardships, difficulties, frustration, sadness in the first place. But even for those who are aware and know that they need God, it's very common for us to kind of assume God in our conversation and sometimes even in our lives. We know God's there, but we focus so much on what we are going to do. We focus so much on what we need to do or what we have done or what we hope to do that we don't really focus our attention on God. And so to one degree or another, God is easily, easily neglected. And John doesn't make that mistake when he begins this letter. He begins the, the very uh, here uh, reminding us that we have to begin with God. He says in verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him, uh, that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. And then the message is God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And so John, as he's beginning with God, he's focusing our attention on the person of God, the nature of God, what God is like, so that we have a clear understanding of what God is like and who God is, or at least we have a great understanding of, of those things, so that we live and we walk with the foundation that we need, the understanding that God is light. Now, it's a word picture that he's using that brings about all sorts of images and may have all sorts of references. I read at one point, uh, not, uh, not long ago, that uh, about uh, light being is, is constituted in, in three different rays or three different groups of, of wavelengths. Each of them are distinct from the other, and yet there is no light as we know light apart from all three of those things. While they're distinct, they, they have to be related to one another. Without the other two, uh, no one is light. Each ray has its own function. The first one originates, the second uh, one illuminates, and the third one consummates. 
And as, the, as it went on to explain that the, the first ray is often uh, called invisible light. It's something that is neither seen nor felt, but it still is there. The second ray is something that is both felt and seen. And the third ray is not seen, but it is felt, and we feel it as heat or, or something that's warm. Now, to, to some degree, as we think about light, which is what John is talking about, this makes a, a wonderful illustration of the Trinitarian nature of God. God is light. God exists at all times in three persons, and yet he is one. There is no God without all three persons of the Holy Spirit. We have a, one person of the Holy Spirit who is neither seen nor felt, being God the Father. He exists and is a spirit. We have one who has been seen and heard and felt, being Jesus Christ, who came and made his dwelling among us, becoming fully man. And we have one who, person of the, Holy, of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who is not seen because he's a spirit and yet makes himself felt, applying the gospel to our lives, bringing conviction to us, illuminating us, and his presence can be felt. And so as John is describing John as light. It may be in one sense he's trying to bring our attention just to the, to the complexity and the unity of God himself. It may be that John is reminding us as the scriptures teach us in the Psalms that the heavens declare the glory of God. And so as you are traveling at some point, perhaps seeing an aurora over a western sky and you are just astounded, your, your breath uh, is taken away, or even a simple sunrise that you've seen many, many times coming up over the oceans or, uh, or uh, over the hills, over the trees. But for whatever reason, one morning it captivates you or a sunset, the same thing. You've seen many of them, but they remind us. They're all inspiring. And as the scriptures tell us, it points to the reality that there's a God who created all of this. There's a God who's created beauty. And all of it sings and testifies about that God, that there is a God. And all of creation declares the glory of God. Both of those are certainly true and certainly in mind of what John has here. But most scholars would say that there are other, other components that John uh, has more in mind. One is that John would be speaking about God who is, uh, God is light. It's speaking in terms of God is truth. Not only Christians, but most world religions and even in non-religious language using this metaphor kind of talk about those who are enlightened, are those who understand truth. And those who live in darkness are people who are absent of truth or ignorant of truth. And John declaring God is light, he is saying God is truth. In him there is no darkness. In other words, God embodies the truth. All truth reflects God. And the fact that there's no darkness in him whatsoever says that there's nothing that God doesn't know. The reason he doesn't, there's nothing God doesn't know is because he has created everything that is. And it seems to reflect very clearly on the fact that God is holy and pure. In language that we're used to, we talk about people that are in light reflecting kind of as an imagery of purity and darkness as something that is, is frightening or scary or evil. And again, not limited to Christian lingo, but the imagery itself is one that is, is universal. And John is declaring God is light, reminding us that God is pure. God is holy. And he is not mixed with anything dark, anything evil whatsoever. God himself is good and perfect and holy. And there is no compromise 
in him. It's important that we understand that's what John is kind of referring to, and he he gets to uh, in a moment when he says, if we claim to walk in the light, but we walk in darkness. John wants to make sure that we understand who God is as a foundation, not only of our faith, but of our life, of our journey in this life, that we have a clear picture, a clear understanding of who God is. And it's not only so that we know, but it's so that we can live. One of many great quotes from C.S. Lewis is that, but I, that I find very, um, very helpful reminder is when he says, I believe in God as I believe in the Son, not because I can see it, but because of it I can see all things. And what Lewis is saying is, look, God is light, and it's important that we can see how God has revealed himself, and we're reminded of the reality of God and what God is like. But God's purpose, at least as John's talking about it here, because it's a purpose for a journey. God is light, and so we need to see him, but by him we are enabled also to walk. The effect of God being light is not just that we know more about God, but it's so that we can live our lives on on a journey. And so John begins with something that seems very essential. It would be something that we could just kind of gloss over very easily. And yet John, I think rightly, reminds us that we should never gloss over what we know of God. We should always check and be reminded of who God is, what God has done, what God is like. And by knowing who he is, we then have our our path lightened. But John also says that this journey that begins with God also includes knowing ourselves or knowing our condition. Some of you may be familiar with uh, Bill Bryson, who is a humorous writer in his book, a Walk in the Woods. I finished it last fall. It took me longer to read since I kept putting it down than it took him to, uh, to not only write, but even to accomplish the purpose of the book. A Walk in the Woods is his account of his desire and his preparation and his journey of hiking the entire Appalachian Trail from Springer Mountain, Georgia, up to Mount Katahdin in Maine, 2,200 miles. As I said, because I began that, I don't know when, and I would put it down and pick it back up again, not because it wasn't enjoyable, but just other things in my life. He was able to hike and write a book uh, faster than I was able to read it. But nevertheless, in it, um, just the entertainment and, uh, of, of his writing, his satirical nature, his, his uh, sarcasm, which I have a great appreciation for. He talks particularly about the idea in the first place, and then his own preparation for it, which are, even if those are the only parts of the book that you read, they're, they're well worth it. But his own participation required him to take inventory of how his physical condition was. To take a journey through rugged terrain of 2,200 miles is not something that you just do on a bored day and saying, I have six months to kill. You plan and you prepare. Now, foolishly, some do get bored, happen to be in Georgia or in Maine, and decide, I think I'll walk the Appalachian Trail, and they usually are done. I think, uh, I think more than 50% of the people who claim they're going to walk the trail are done within a day. And very few actually make it. I won't tell you about his journey on it to ruin the book for you, but it was an intriguing thing because it is a reminder. And as I look at what John is doing here, it's a reminder somewhat of, of it reminded me of what uh, Bryson was talking about. He has to take inventory of understanding of, of his own condition. 
And so that as we're going to walk this journey in life, while we begin with the understanding of who God is and what all is revealed by the fact that God is light, our understanding, and that we walk by God, we need to look at our spiritual condition as well and constantly take inventory and be aware of our strengths, our deficits, things that would hinder us from being able to make this particular journey. Mark Twain rightly once said, every man is like the moon. There is a dark side to every man that others don't see, but that he knows is there. And that's true for us, and John hints to that as he is writing this, because he's bringing out something about us that we don't really like to admit to ourselves. Now, in this church, we talk about it a lot. But we still, most of us are uncomfortable. Most of us have not, even if we experience it, accept it, and, and, and understand it, we are quick to want to forget it. But John points out very clearly that our condition is that we are infected with sin. And it's important to realize that when John is writing this, he's saying that there's a universal condition, but he's writing this particularly to believers. These are not people that he's writing to. He's not writing to people who have rejected Christ. He's not writing this as a general letter for the world, although it is a revelation to the entire world, but he's writing specifically to believers. And the reason that's significant, because it's very easy for us to get the idea that if we are in Christ, if we belong to God, if we are God's children, some subjects that we'll explore in the, in the weeks to come, that, you know, that may have been our past. But it's not much of a problem today. John is very clear in pointing out different ways in which that reality can cause us to stumble in our journey. It begins as he's talking about this in verse 6. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. John there is confronting the whole mindset that was apparently growing around the Ephesian Christians at this time and still is present today of the people who declare that they have some sort of a relationship with God and because they have a relationship with God, whatever they're basing it upon, whether just because they've decided they have, or because at some point they have walked an aisle and gotten a little bit wet, or because they have actually invited Christ and confessed their sin, but they, whatever basis that they are, uh, that, that they are, um, uh, that they have for declaring that they have this fellowship with God, they live their lives as if it doesn't matter how they live their lives. In other words, he's saying, if you declare that you have fellowship with God and you walk in darkness, you continue in sin, you're lying. It's a very clear declaration. We lie and we do not practice the truth. John is making clear to us that how we live our lives does matter. Now, this is a very confusing thing, and it gets confused further when we look down on the other things that John was saying. At least some of us get confused uh, very easily. Because if we come to God on the basis of his grace, knowing we're sinners, we have no other hope. And John says, and you are sinners, as he will, we'll see that he says in a moment. But he says, if you claim to have a relationship with God, but you're living in sin, then you have your fellowship is not right. That's, that's understands, I, am, I understand why people get confused about that. But what John is pointing out first and foremost here 
not exhaustively in this passage, is this. The way you live your life does matter. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey what I command. We'll talk about that more next week. But John is saying, you, the person who understands the love of God and what Christ has done for us does not say, oh, I'll accept that. And then have no heart for how God feels about the way we live, God's reputation based on how we live. The person who does that is kidding themselves, lying to themselves about whether they are in Christ in the first place. John's making a very strong statement. He's not saying that how we live saves us. He's not saying that we become believers and if we sin, God will now reject us. He does seem to be hinting that when we live in sin, defiance or, ignor or apathy about God himself, there's a brokenness in the fellowship, and that sort of makes sense. Think about people that you know and relationships that you have, people that are friends who begin to ignore or betray one another. There's a problem in that relationship, even if it's an unbreakable one, a relationship that should be indissolvable, such as a marriage. There's a problem in the fellowship of a marriage if the couple isn't communicating, isn't talking, and worse yet, if one isn't coming home or spending their time with somebody else. They're still married, the relationship still exists, and yet the fellowship is certainly strained, if in not some ways broken. John is saying, look, be very clear about your life. If you want to make this journey, realize that how you live your life does matter in terms of the relationship and considering who God is and that God does not compromise because God is pure and he doesn't have any darkness at all. We need to take this seriously. We also need to take it seriously because of what John goes on and says. He says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. That's kind of a bridge. He's saying if you walk in darkness, but if you walk in the light, so the question is, what is the light? We're getting to that. We will see that here in a moment. But it's reminding us of who God is and what God has done. He says, here's our other part of the problem verse, uh, in, in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The interesting thing there is that that language is present tense, written to believers. He's not saying if we had not sinned, we pretend like we've never sinned. And many Christians seem to be under the idea that the whole purpose of our growth or the whole purpose of Christianity and the way we testify or the way we share the faith with others is about how good we've become. And yet, John is saying, if you say that you have no sin, you deceive yourselves. The truth is not in you. He goes on and says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the Greek there talks about an ongoing cleansing that's taking place, which suggests that there's a need for ongoing cleansing. And there he's indicting us all, and that's the confusing part. Walk in the light, and yet if you say you don't have any sin, you're lying. He goes on and says a little bit later in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And this is for the person who realizes sin is serious and have confessed the reality of their, their sinful nature. But now they live their lives 
on the basis of their improvements, or at least their intentions. The person who says each time they realize that they have not measured up, that they'll do better, and they're living, and they wouldn't call what they have done sin. John, by dealing with these different natures, is really indicting all of us and saying all of us are infected with this condition that's called sin. And it's essential, it's necessary for us to acknowledge that condition if we're going to make this journey that he's calling us to walk in the light. We've, he, both of those demand that we confess, acknowledge and confess the reality of our own sinfulness. And it's not anything new, and it's not just John. It's the way it's always been. And Isaiah, a man who has known God since he was young, yet when God shows up and meets him, Isaiah's response to the holiness of God is, woe is me, I am undone. Because he is aware of the reality that no matter how good he is, how much better he is than everybody else, he still is infected with sin and he's unworthy to be in the presence of God. The Apostle Paul is very clear. If you just consider his testimony, Paul, when he begins his life, he describes how he became a believer. He says, I was one abnormally born. And then as he has been fruitful and faithful and grown more understanding of who God is and who he is, and his maturity has been evident to all the people who are around him, he's become a leader, he confesses, I don't do what I want to do and I do what I don't want to do. And then toward the end of his life, when he has been more fruitful than almost any man in history for the sake of the kingdom, a man of great wisdom, a man who has written and penned several of the letters so that we would understand not only who God is, but how we relate to God and how we should function in this life. Paul, as he's writing to his protege, he says, here's a, here's a saying that is worthy of all consideration. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. Paul is saying at the end of his life, after he has grown and his knowledge has increased and he's given his life, he's been beaten and continues to keep on ticking like the Energizer Bunny, he just keeps on rolling. He says, my, I just can't even imagine that there's anybody who's worse than me. This is his progress because he recognizes the reality that he continues to be affected in sin. And the very statement that he makes to, to Timothy is not a competition. He's saying, well, since I'm the chief of sinners, then Timothy, you can be second. He's saying this is a statement that is a trustworthy statement, worthy of all consideration. Paul says, this is the mindset that I have embraced because it helps me understand the reality of my condition. And since it's a statement that is trustworthy and worthy of consideration, he's saying, Timothy, this is the mindset that you should embrace. In fact, this is the mindset you should teach. This is the mindset that all who are in Christ should, uh, should embrace. Christ came into the world to save sinners. I'm the worst. There's nobody wor he's, he's very well aware. It has always been that way that we understand uh, our, our spiritual condition, and he's defining it as sin. But along with that, we also need to understand what resource we have that actually enables us to go through this journey. And as Bryson was talking not only about his physical preparation, one of the most humorous chapters in that whole book was talking about going to the outfitters and looking at all of the different options and talking to people that work there about all of the tools and all of the, all the resources that a hiker will take with him on their trip. And the reality is John is pointing us to the only resource that will enable us to make the trip, but he does so in a couple of different ways to show us the strength and the hope that we have to make this trip, and that when we behold it, when we consider it, when we embrace it and, and accept that, it actually is the source of joy 
that we're looking for at the end of the, at the, end of the journey. Because what he says in here is, uh, is this. If, in verse 9, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that cleanse us part, he says twice. He says it earlier and he says it again. Now, to understand that, we need to consider what the picture that John, uh, that John is painting for us. And I had great help in understanding this from uh, an older man several years ago as he was talking about how it was difficult for him. He always knew that his only hope was the grace of Christ. But he kept screwing up. In fact, worse, he kept on screwing up in the same areas over and over and over in his life. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you. Sometimes he was creative, and sin would show itself in ways that he hadn't sinned before. But there were certain things in his life that were just, he thought he'd shake, and they would, they would come back in the same kind of struggle, same kind of difficulties. And he knew that the whole purpose, the whole point, uh, uh, or his whole, his, what was needed was that he would confess his sin, he knew that God is merciful. He even knew that Jesus, we're told in the scriptures and, and the picture here with the word faithful and just, pictures a courtroom. And elsewhere, we're talking about Jesus being our advocate, the one who stands before the judge, the Father as the judge, on our behalf and asking for the Father's forgiveness. But the question that he had in his mind at that point was not whether God is merciful, but how long will Jesus keep this up? How many times is he going to go before the judge as our advocate and say, okay, he blew it again, did the same thing that you forgave him and pardoned him for last time. So, but we're back again to ask for you to have pardon. He said, but he looked at this particular passage and he realized for the first time the words faithful and just are significant. And he began to picture the courtroom in this way and began to refute his mindset. Because until he looked at this passage, his whole mindset was that the advocate, Christ, would go before the father, the judge, and say, Your Honor, I, I know my client's an idiot. Have mercy on him one more time. Or just have mercy on him. But he looked at this passage and realized that that's not what Jesus is saying because if we confess our sin. The Father, the judge, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. And he realized that the defense that the advocate Jesus is making on our behalf is, Your Honor, my client has yet again failed in the very areas that he has failed before in his life. And there's no question that he is guilty. But, Your Honor, I have already paid the debt of his sin. My blood was shed for him. I was crushed for his iniquity. The price has been paid, and to condemn him or to put any punishment upon him in addition to what I've paid is not only lack of merciful, it is unjust. And this is a declaration that God, who is merciful, who is also very just, looks to you and I who realize our condition and grants to us forgiveness, not only on the basis of mercy, but on the basis of his justice, because we are in need and the recipients of what Christ has done for us when we simply confess and believe. That is the strength that we need. And what takes place at that point is we're also being cleansed. In other words, we're less likely to screw up, perhaps, than we were before we understood. Because the promise here is that the blood of Christ will cleanse us. It's an ongoing cleansing. We continue to have our weakness. We continue to be infected. But the blood of Christ is at work, and it's cleansing us so that the sin will eventually die. And righteousness was all that will stand. Some of the more inquiring of you might want to know, well, then how does that blood work? I mean, how is it that the blood is cleansing us, and, and what's going on? 
And quite honestly, I have to confess to you, I don't know. I don't know the dynamic of how the blood cleans you up from the dirt of your sin. But I also don't know how soap works and cleans you up from the dirt of the day, but I prefer that you use it. And I know you would prefer that I use it. The fact that we don't understand all the dynamics, we have the promise of God through John here saying twice that as we are faithful, we acknowledge the reality of our brokenness and we confess that to him. God, who is faithful and just to forgive us, also is at work to cleanse us from our condition. In other words, we are strengthened and we grow more and more strength. We never get independent on this journey. Just like somebody who was going to make a trip uh, on the Appalachian Trail would be foolish to go with uh, nothing but their hiking boots and their shorts and perhaps a staff. We are in need of the resource of Christ. We never exhaust that as long as we are in this journey. It's our hope, it's our foundation, but it's also the promise. And John lays that out and he's reminding us that we are on a journey and we are on a journey to joy. Joy can be experienced now and when we realize what we've been forgiven and what we've been promised, there can be joy now. But we need to have a foundation on this journey and a realization of who God is, who we are, why we are needing him then we're prepared to walk in the light. Because walking in the light is not so much what sometimes we are inclined to believe. You know, let your light shine. It's an appropriate, even a biblical phrase. But our light is not our goodness. Christianity is not about showing people how good we are, how good we can be, or how good they can be. Christianity is about acknowledging the reality of our brokenness, the joy that we have despite our brokenness because the love that is given to us in Christ and the promises of Christ, the walking in the light is shining the light as letting the light of Christ reflect off of your life. As we live that, we are set free from the pretending of being better than we are. We are set free from the burden that is on our back, from the reality of the guilt of our sin. We are set free to pursue the object of our desire. The joy that comes through fellowship with God and all who God has called. And the eternal life and the eternity which we have begun the moment we are with him. I know a lot of this is familiar. John assumes it was too. But as we walk our life, we build the foundation. As we go on this journey, it's important to remember, as it is said, that a journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. And so it is reasonable, therefore, to assume that the most important step on a journey of a thousand miles is the first step. Because if you take a step in the wrong direction, you find yourself having all sorts of trials that you would not have had otherwise. You might even miss your destination. But if you have a faithful guide, as we do in John and John does in Jesus, and you take the step on the proper foundation, which is remembering who God is, remembering who we are, so that the light will shine, we walk in the light and have what we desire. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word we thank you for John and his wisdom and for your spirit that inspired him. 
We thank you that it, we are reminded yet again that it's not about our goodness, but about your goodness. And I pray, Lord, that that's a message that we would not ever consider just become trite or even merely foundational. But it's not something that we would ignore, assume, or neglect. But we would embody it. Father, bless us to appropriate these truths, the first deposits of joy. I pray in Christ.